0: No one in my SaaS is offering me $15,000 today. Agency life is like, oh, you hit a big contract and this big chunk of cash hits the bank account. And there's that kind of rush to it. And it's really hard to say, don't go out and celebrate. Let's like focus on working on this product that's going to release in a year. And then who wants to do that when you can go make 500 bucks today?
1: All right, we're back. Welcome back to the pod. Uh, this one came directly from a conversation I was already having. Many listeners know this is the longest I've spent in the United States consecutively since like 07-08. So it's been a big adjustment for me. And there's a big part of me that just can't wait to go visit some amazing places around the world. It's not just me, it's the listeners of this pod. That's in part why we're hosting, you know, our first event since the pandemic started in Mexico City this autumn. So I was on the phone with an old friend who happened to be in Mexico City and who was helping giving us his insight onto what venues would be good and what neighborhoods and what party venues and all this kinds of stuff. And we just got on to talking about business and lifestyle and the permanent travel lifestyle and all these TMBA themes started coming out in the podcast, like you know how he started from a services business and then productized it a bit. And now he's you know running a software product business with a big upside. And I was just having so much fun with this conversation. I just said... Hey, Jesse, would you mind calling me back in a few days and flipping on the microphone? Could we do this for the podcast? And he agreed. So so happy to bring this one to you. Today's guest is Jesse Schoberg, someone I've known for a long time and have met in many wonderful places around the world. He's been a full-time nomad with no permanent home, living out of Airbnbs for over seven years now. So we're going to talk about why not only he finds this nomad life so appealing, but also extremely practical in the second half of the show. But first, and what we got started with, and what turned out to be really interesting for those of you running services businesses and looking for ways to progress into product, because in this realm, Jesse has walked that hard path of sort of being stuck in services, not really stuck, but it was really good. And how he finally made that transition onto a path that has the potential to be much more profitable. Jesse is the co-founder and CEO of Dropin Blog, which is a SaaS platform that allows users to put a blog on any website that was not built in WordPress. So if you run a website on lead pages or Shopify, you can use DropIn Blog to host a blog on your site. Now his background is as a developer, but he's got chops in a lot of other areas, as you'll hear. And Jesse has two co-founders whom he's worked with over many businesses over the years, and they have Around 10 members of their remote team all paid hourly, so it's a pretty tight operation. So I started out by asking Jesse about the journey that brought him to where he is today.
0: Before Drop and Blog, I mean, I did a lot of stuff, but I started building websites and running an agency, and I mean, the scalability difference here is just, it's... One of those things where, you know, you mentioned it in a recent episode, the difference between uh, making a living and making a killing. Well, as an agency owner, I made a living, a good living for a long time, but it kind of became golden handcuffs in the way that like, you know, I needed to start over to find something that I could make a killing with. And that's where Drop and Blog finally came along. But it came a lot slower than it would have if I would have started with something that would have scaled a lot better.
1: Is that a regret that you have?
0: Uh, I don't think it's a regret because I lived very well in a lot of places for a long time, you know, because as we'll get to a little bit, you know, living nomad life, I've been living out of the States for about 12, 13 years. And I left the States, I already had the agency and I was already making over six figures. I just kind of like coasted and enjoyed that and started a bunch of side projects, but didn't get that serious about it. The thing about agency work is it's you know, when somebody shows up and says, hey, what, you know, you want to do this project? It's, it's 15 grand. And you say, well, yeah, that's nice to have 15 grand in the bank. And then I can keep living my life. But then, of course, then that puts you into doing a lot of work to get that done and keeps you away from doing something that will actually scale. And scaling an agency is a nightmare. I know a lot of people that have agencies that have 150 employees and are doing three, four, five million dollars a year. And it's a nightmare to run never had any interest in doing that. So it was always like, well, I'm going to keep this at this level that I can have sanity and still give good work. But then I, I need to work towards something else. When Drop Blog took off, we had four projects that we were working on. And then when that started jumping, then we sold all the other ones to give us some runway and went for it.
1: So you had like a classic agency where you, you all basically did like web development and digital marketing for local businesses.
0: Yeah. Yeah. We did have a little bit of a a niche that was different than other people is that we wholesaled to other agencies. I was living in Madison, Wisconsin. I just went to all the other agencies there and I said, Hey, we have a better team and I can develop faster and keep up with the technology better than your in-house can. So why don't you just outsource everything to me? We had the agency. we were making static sites. And then that's where the idea came from because we had this demand. Oh, we love the site, but we want to add a blog. So then we had to add WordPress and a subdomain and create another theme and all this. And then so that's where the idea, like, oh, if we could just drop a blog into the existing platform, that would be great. And that, like, was pending for a few years. And then we finally built it. And then we just use it for those clients. It was like making like something like $2,000 a month or something. And it was just another one of our projects. And we didn't really see how it could scale. Cause if you look at the keywords that we were ranking for, there's like barely any traffic. And we thought, well, this probably can't turn into anything, but Hey, maybe someday it'll be 10 grand a month. And that can just be something. In other words.
1: Like nobody was looking for a drop-in blog before you built it.
0: Right. Got an inquiry from somebody, a white label person, actually, that wanted quite a few of accounts. And we were like, Oh, before that we were like we were around like 2k a month for like a while and then this was like an extra 4k one thing we were noticing in a bunch of our signups we were starting to get more signups on dropblog and we noticed that they w- weren't static sites that they were on these builders oh they're using weebly and they put our thing in they're using webflow and they put our thing in oh they're using thinkific and they put it. oh they're using leap and then it's like oh whoa like then all of a sudden the aha moment hit that like, now we have someone to market to, right? So then we start looking at it and It's like, well, turns out our product will actually work. We can make it work with basically any platform. So then we started doing some research and we found about 50 platforms that we could target. And now we kind of look at their audiences and we go, oh, so now all of a sudden we got say maybe like 8K in MRR. And then at the same time, we were looking through the data and the signups and saw the potential. And we were like, this is it. Like, I can't see the ceiling. Like, we need to stop everything else and run.
1: What you've done here is identified a moneyed problem. You were solving problems with money, and that money led you to product. I think that's a really important lesson because when people just see, oh, here's a guy with mid five figure MRR, he's got a real slick software product. As like people who, Aim to either want to become entrepreneurs or want to transition to product, that can look really intimidating. I'm wondering if you can kind of like add some texture to that because for me, it's really inspiring to hear the story of how you got there because it makes me think that I can duplicate what you've done.
0: The lesson that I guess that is the takeaway is that we were actually solving a real pain point and finding what that is. They needed a blog that went on the site instead of you coming up with an idea that think like, oh, maybe people will think this is fun. You know, there's so many SaaS products that are like 10 bucks a month that are some random add-on that everyone could use, but no one really needs, right? And I think that trying to find an actual pain point and ideally something that's going to add to their bottom line. So then when the recession hits, you're not the first thing that comes off of the list. I mean, as anyone who runs a company, right, we all are subscribed to a bunch of SaaS products for this and that and the other thing, right? Well, when money gets tight, the first thing you do is run through and you say, oh, you know what, that like A-B testing thing that I, I feel like I tested it, and I used it, we made some not nominal results and, you know, that's 80 bucks a month, like we're cutting that immediately.
1: Right. But you're like the plumbing of a business at this point.
0: You know, it's a little more resilient, I guess we'll say. Solve a problem that's an actual problem, not a pretend problem, you know. I mean, not that conversion's not important to use that example or whatever, of course, but you know, there's things that, you know, it's like you're not leaving your email provider. It doesn't have to be that big of a problem, but it has to be a problem that's an actual problem, not a pretend problem.
1: You kind of mentioned this period where you were like just making a living and things were going really good, and like did the fact that like you didn't arrive at product and scalability sooner have something to do with the quality of your lifestyle or the fact that you were nomading
0: um you know i didn't have a lot of motivation is really the the honest part about it like i was making enough money that like i had a really good life when you have cash flow the pile doesn't matter you know and it's a lot easier to spend cash flow than it is to spend pile piles are scary it's nice to have a pile but piles are scary to spend yeah and cash flow is easy to spend. It's really hard to get motivated to say like, Oh, you know, starting this thing from zero or whatever. But the difference is the advantage I guess that I had is that, you know, when I'm running an agency and building product, everyone else's products for 10 years, I know how to build a product. I know how to manage a team. Like, so that part was easy for me. Sure. I wish I would have hit this landmark 10 years sooner. I feel like it would have been possible if I would have really focused but, you know, having that much experience with team management and just building stuff paid off that now we're actually, we have a very stable company, right? Like, I'm not worried about like the quality of our backend. It's not a house of cards, right? Like, it's something that by having that experience, I was able to, you know, actually build something more solid, I guess.
1: As a founder of a company at this scale, what does your day-to-day look like? What is your actual input into the company?
0: I found that my best focus in the company or in life really is I'm really good at zooming in and I'm really good at zooming out. So I'm really good at vision. I'm really good at trying to figure out where is the company going to go and what's like the, what are the big steps that we're going to take. And then I'm also really good at jumping into the last detail of the thing to make sure that the UI and the drop down is not messed up on this thing and, and can get that perfect. It's the middle stuff that I'm not good at. So I try not to spend too much time there. So as I mentioned, I have two other co-founders. So one of my co-founders is operation head. She's the one who's a little bit more like in with the team and kind of doing the middle stuff that I'm not as good at. And then uh, my other co-founder is a, the technical co-founder, and he manages the back end and then also the staff that's involved with the programming and that kind of stuff. So you know, I'm kind of the the ship captain, and so my focus is usually trying to make sure the ship is headed in the right direction.
1: It's interesting that you have a technical co-founder given your technical. It's also interesting that, you know, you just had an agency for a long time and now your product, I feel like that transition is one that so many people want to make, but they just never quite get there.
0: It's hard. It's really hard. Why? Because the money is too good.
1: It's like a really high, high. Like you get paid a lot to do yeah. agency work
0: and it feels good and you get the money today. No one in my SAS is offering me $15,000 today, right? Like it's just not the case. They sign up for 50 bucks or 30 bucks or whatever, you know, like, and so right. it's, it's this very slow, long, like grind, which is great because it's very stable and whatever, but it doesn't have that rush. I mean, agency life is like, oh, you hit a big contract and this big chunk of cash hits the bank account and you go out and have drinks and you're just like, we're doing a project for insert large company name or, you know, like, Right. there's that kind of rush to it. And it's really hard to say Don't go out and celebrate. Let's like focus on working on this product that's going to release in a year and then, you know, and then we'll slowly get some customers. And then in a couple of years after, you know, thousand day rule stuff, right? Who wants to do that when you can go make 500 bucks today?
1: So, one of the theories on the show that we roll out often is like if you're like you and you feel like you're wired to be a hustler and entrepreneur, that the easiest way to get that done and to create a sustainable nomadic income is to essentially start a Agency or even a more focused productized service. Do you believe that to be true?
0: I mean, it's definitely the easy way in. I think that the productized service is better than the regular agency. Like, I love that that kind of came about. We never really transitioned to that. It kind of like showed up a little bit after us, and we kind of did some things like that with some of our customers. Since we were doing wholesale work for other agencies, we did have a very like priced out. You know like this is how much it is for the custom wordpress theme and this is how much it is if you add a form and this is how much it is if you skin out a shopify store but it wasn't truly productized like things are now so i would definitely say that if you're gonna go with client work that productize is the way to go because then you at least have a chance at scaling the problem is it's even that's really hard to scale i mean even the people that we know that have really scaled productized. You're still running an agency. Like you can t- tell yourself you're not running an agency, but you're still <laughs> you're still running an agency. There's a lot of human capital involved and it's really still really hard to scale. You know, it doesn't become exponentially profitable like products do. And so you still need to get that team and keep growing that team and before you know it you're managing 150 people and that's hard.
1: I'll say a couple things about the productized thing in response to that. I think you're you're spot on. One of the things is just the general opportunity of being a wholesale productized service for agencies. Like this is a real opportunity. It's something that people are doing really well with sizable products that say like, hey, like I thought your skin a Shopify site is a great example of. It's easy to identify agencies because they're trying to market themselves. So then you get in front of like a hundred, a couple hundred agency owners and you're like, I'm the skin a Shopify site person. You know, we have a whole system for that. That's an opportunity. The other thing I'm saying, seeing is this. I know that there's like really successful agencies out there, just like there's really successful law firms and oil companies and stuff, but in the niches that I've seen like the people in this community, it feels like the agency owners that are like at the are they doing really well. They're talking about like making multi six figures a year. And the productized service owners that are doing well, they're talking about making seven figures a year. And then it's like the people who build products like they're the people that are talking about eight figure exits.
0: Totally. I mean, the agency thing and the margins, the further you go up, the worse the margins get. We were able to keep good margins running at, you know, low to mid six figures. You want to run mid seven figures through an agency, the margins go down, down, down.
1: You can have like a like a pandemic or whatever and it like just kills like your very fragile house of cards of like how you're gonna make that money i've personally done it worked on a L that i contributed to where you're talking about like a whole year's worth of stressful sales calls like million dollar clients close to four million dollars in revenue and at the end of the day a founder who's no dummy who's very smart who went to one of the top business schools in the country is writing himself a check for two hundred fifteen thousand dollars.
0: totally the original question here was like, should you get started? Should you do agency work? Should you start a productized service? I would probably go back to the idea of do anything you can, anything that you have some skills at to cover your expenses, get your baseline covered as efficiently as possible and just stop there. Like that's where we always get caught is like, well, now that's going pretty good. And maybe I should double down on that. No. No. Now focus on the big thing, and you know, suck it up and just live on that amount of money for a couple of years, and work on the the big idea. Again, like I got stuck there for longer than I would have liked. I mean, I started about twenty years ago doing this kind of stuff, started making decent money about five years in, and it wasn't until just a couple years ago that I was able to flip over. So that's a long time of being stuck in agency life. I was making a living, I wasn't making a killing. That's for sure.
1: Monday, 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 this Monday morning, ignite your business growth with an absurdly high quality hire from Dynamite Jobs. A hire so explosive to your bottom line, you're bound to be bogged down in cash money. To get started, it's just a zero to 30 minute phone call rocket fueled by the legendary Ian Close and Showin. Watch him risk his reputation with career killing, high pressure sales tactics. Experience live the let me take that to my finance guy move, the hard sell, and I think I need a chief operating officer. What would change in your business if we could get that done for you today? Classic reversal. Hiring used to be a pain in the ass, but with Dynamite Jobs recruiting, it's scintillating, titillating, profiterating. This Monday, 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 go to dynamitejobs.com and click on the hire with us link. Okay, so I want to lay out the framework here the inception moment for you to not be a normie and to be a digital nomad instead. And then I want to circle back to that. So what was the inspiration for you to go nomad versus to go normie, so to speak?
0: Well, there was kind of two chapters for me, actually. I went expat before I went nomad, before nomad was a thing. Around 2008, I was living in Madison, Wisconsin, and was looking for a change of pace wanted to be in a bigger city around more interesting people and kind of what we talk about, like community and life adventure and this kind of stuff. And at that point was kind of like looking for other cities to move to. I had this location independent income that I'd created with the agency. And so started looking at or initially other cities in the States. So I was like, Oh, I'm looking at Austin. I'm looking at Denver, you know, I had been on a vacation to Panama city, Panama a couple years earlier. And I was like, Oh man, I remember Panama. That was pretty cool like I could probably live there and kind of like went on another trip to like scout. And then that's where the arbitrage hit me. Oh yeah. I can live like I'm living in Miami here for the price that I was living in Madison. If I moved to Denver or Austin, my lifestyle is going to go down. And that was kind of it. it just kind of clicked. And it actually took some time because I was living a more normie life. I owned a house and so I, I sold the house and then I actually bought an apartment in Panama and moved there and then set up like an expat life there, which was way better than my normal life in the States where kind of like doing the great things that we do as nomads, but there was like a fair expat scene there. So like I had a lot of friends, it was the first time I would met other entrepreneurs that were really doing the kind of stuff that I was into and interested in and people making products and software and that kind of stuff where you know, in Madison, like I had zero peer group. It was just very not a fit for me. And then when I got to Panama, that's when it all kind of clicked, opened my eyes. I met interesting people from all over the world that were doing interesting things. We were renting beach houses and renting boats and going to islands and like, you know, doing stuff with people from all over the world that was very interesting. So that was kind of my first chapter. And then I lived there actually for quite a few years. I mean, officially, probably like eight years, but the last two years is kind of when I started nomading. Then I kind of started learning about the nomad community and, you know, started listening to the pod a little bit. And I actually went to a, like a co-living month. Then that's where I kind of got exposed to like people who were actually nomading. When I moved to Panama, I like looked for other people. You know, I was like, but this is 2008 the four hour work week hadn't even been written. Like I was already living in Panama when someone handed me the four hour work week. And then it wasn't until man, not that long ago. I think it was around 2014 or something that
1: that's kind of long ago at this point.
0: (laughs) I went to this co-living month that someone randomly on Facebook was like, this sounds like something you'd be into Jesse. And I went to this co-living month and met a bunch of people that were like more in the nomad community had been going to Chiang Mai and listening to the pod and, you know, working on their products and going to Bali and all this kind of stuff. I didn't know anything about any of this stuff. Like I just kind of like was living in a bubble, working on my stuff. And then that's kind of when the, when it all changed. Cause at that same moment I was kind of getting bored with Panama. People were moving on to different things and, you know, just kind of sick of being in the same place for so long. And then that's kind of when I spent a couple years kind of in and out of Panama, floating around the world and said, I'm definitely leaving Panama, put my place on Airbnb full time and moved to Thailand as the first like base. I think that was like 2016 or something like that. So I kind of went opposite. Like a lot of people, they they like go into nomad life and then they like slowly work their way kind of back into normie life. And I kind of like started in normie life and slowly worked my way into like super nomad life. So when I first got to Thailand, I got a, a year lease in Chiang Mai and had a nice place and and you know kind of got my feet wet there and then traveled around the region. But then I realized I only spent six months in the apartment out of the year lease, paying double rent, et cetera. So then I after that lease was up, I just went Airbnb full-time forever. And then through that, I kind of got sick of dealing with managing this apartment in Panama. So sold that apartment to become like that kind of asset and worry free. And then just being really agile and living full-time Airbnb without having a real home.
1: I think it's worth like, just positing like the American context and then people who are, you know, they're normies in Australia, or if they're normies in Europe or whatever, like they can paint it for their own context. We're both Americans. So one of the things I think it's, it's worthwhile, like pointing out like normie versus like nomad versus expat is because the expense of being a normie, if you want to you know live a reasonably middle class or upper middle class lifestyle that's been afforded to you by your business is incredibly high as is the price of nomading so you have to be quite wealthy to sustainably support both of them and so that i do think that there is this diametric quality to it the idea of just having a high quality lifestyle in america and then nomading half the year we're talking about like a high level of income there and so the kind of a lifestyle that you live, full-time Airbnb nomad lifestyle, how much does it cost?
0: The level of life that I live, I generally spend probably like six to nine, thousand dollars a month on, you know, everything.
1: So I've been spending that much here in America. And maybe we could do a little bit of lifestyle comparison. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what do you get for your six to nine, thousand dollars a month?
0: Well, you usually get a pretty nice apartment. As my income increases, that's the first place that I that I spend more because being worked from home, we spend a lot of time in the house. So I continually scale up the apartment. You know, you can live in Airbnb around the world for around a thousand dollars a month, and that was kind of my budget for a long time. But then, as my income kind of grew a little bit, then you know, I started moving to two, 000, three thousand dollars a month. And especially in some cities they are a bit more reasonably priced than what you'd see in the more expensive countries, you get quite a bit. So I think that the apartment is, is the first thing. Yeah.
1: As a rule of thumb, we were brainstorming. It depends on the city, but I think that as a rule of thumb, living the Airbnb life, which I have my credentials as well, I've done this for years at a time, it costs about three to four times what the local rent would be.
0: I would disagree. I say it's about 2x. The monthly Airbnb price, not the weekly, you got to go. If you rent by the month, which usually then Airbnb will have a separate discount for that. The hosts have the option of that. I find that the monthly... I think
1: my apartment would be about 5,000 a month on Airbnb. And I'm paying right now, like 18 to 1900. So that's an American ratio. I've often said like, To live like the Airbnb life in America, you kind of need like 4,500 bucks a month to chuck it rent if you want to live like in a decent kind of place. Yeah. Does that sound fair?
0: Let's be clear. Like what you're getting for 45 a month in the States is nothing compared to what you get everywhere else.
1: Oh, you're getting like a normal apartment in the United States.
0: Yeah. The other thing that I found talking about that ratio is that if you build relationships and even just by staying a month or more. They're not used to that. You know, A lot of their pricing is built around people staying for a week or a weekend. So when you rent for a month or say you're going to rent for three months, you have some negotiating power there. When I was living in Manila, I was actually able to get down to the lease price at one place that I frequented just because they liked having me there. I think a lot of these Airbnb people, they get sick of dealing with the Airbnb. So if you can offer them, you know, a solid booking for a few months, which they're not used to having, now that hassle becomes off their plate, you have a little bit of negotiating room there. But either way, I'd say two X is what I would say is the average.
1: So let's um discuss some common objections to nomadism. Sure. Um, and maybe see like uh, you know, how you think about it. What about this idea, like people say like nomading takes a lot of energy to like do travel plans and to organize your stuff and all that?
0: it is true that there is more planning involved. That said, depending on how often you move, at my peak, I was doing a month in each city. Most people find it more sustainable to do like three months. So if you do three months in a city, you know, that means you only have to book four places a year. That's not a terrible amount of work. And the thing about Airbnb is they're actually kind of more serviced than a regular house or apartment would be in the fact that You basically have a built-in assistant in some level. You can ask them about things in the city, or you can say like, you know, if there's a problem with your internet or with your water heater, they're there to take care of that. I mean, if you own a place, there's endless amounts of stuff you have to do, right? You got to clean the gutters and paint the house and, you know, mow the lawn, right? Yeah, I mean,
1: one of the things that shows up on my hypothetical line items for home ownership is you're essentially buying yourself a part time job. You're buying yourself a tax liability. You're also like buying yourself visibility on where you sleep every night and you're projecting that to the whole world. There's this idea that home ownership is sort of like the end all be all. And I think that, you know, the nomadic movement like challenges that in some important ways. There's a lot of rote boring and non-value generating tasks from a financial perspective. Now, from an emotional perspective, homeownership has a long heritage and I respect that and all that. And a lot of people love doing that kind of stuff. But from a financial perspective, you're right. You're you're buying yourself a to-do list. And so this brings me to the next objection, which is like, what do you say to people who are like, I just want to have my own place and like my bookshelf and like the sheets that I like and... I couldn't possibly live the Airbnb lifestyle because I really like to have my own place.
0: Yeah. So there's a couple kind of ways to look at that. It depends on how particular you are with that stuff. So one thing I've noticed is once you move up the scale a little bit, a lot of people who are living nomad life are baselining, right? So it's like, oh, I have the cheapest, 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 cheapest. Well, once you have a little bit more money, you know, when you rent a place on Airbnb for three, $4,000 a month, like you get nice sheets and like you, you get nice kitchen stuff. Yes, it's not necessarily all your perfect stuff, but like, it's generally pretty nice stuff.
1: It depends what you're good at and like what your focus is. I've found that as I went up the price ladder in Airbnb, that the hosts they became good at real estate and decoration and like buying stuff, and so like I would learn things coming to places as when I compare to my current apartment, which is much less. In fact, I was. Speaking with potential interior designers recently, because like I realized that like I couldn't get my apartment to the level of the places I was staying at for, yeah, like 2,500 a month or 3,000 a month when I was living in foreign countries.
0: I will say that there is something to be said about having your stuff or having it just like something that's comfortable and normal that you know. The other step two way to solve that or to, to beat that objection a little bit is return to some of the same apartments. So, I do that in some of the cities that I like a lot. I have a couple apartments that I stay at regularly. You know, I generally buy stuff for the apartments too because I like, you know, I'm staying there for a while. So, that's the other thing. A lot of people, they just think, oh, well, man, this place is great, but they just don't have a good knife. My life sucks. It's like, go spend $15 on a nice kitchen. You know, like, (laughs) I'll do that often. You know, you just spend a couple hundred dollars on little things around the apartment that are the things that you want that would make it better. And then when you come back, those things are probably going to be there. The hosts are very appreciative that you added some nice touches to their apartment. And then when you come back, then they have a nice knife or or whatever.
1: I think it's interesting, Jesse, because like, you know, part of it is like this deprogramming of like, these were genuinely large problems like 20 years ago when we got started in our careers, like, and Airbnb has just like come along and sort of evaporated them, you know, in the same way that Uber has done it for car ownership in some metropolitan areas. I mean, it is really fascinating to kind of see the ground shift underneath our feet and that's why i think it's cool to talk to you as an edge case one of the things you brought up earlier that i wanted you to vamp on this idea a little bit like you were like okay so you lived in madison wisconsin and like what madison's like famous for having like a really good university it's like smart people live there and you're like i had no peer group and then you moved to panama which like isn't as nice as madison by like a lot of standards you know and all of a sudden you're describing like meeting people who are building products and this has been my experience and honestly if I'm being honest like I have a great network here in Austin, Texas, but I still find myself around like normal people all the time. I want you to like describe like what this expat or nomad like kind of community, like how, what is it? How does it happen? Why are we attracted to it?
0: It's pretty simple that it's a great filter. If you had the foresight and just playing the balls to leave your country and go live in another country for really any amount of time right there. That's a huge filter, right? Like you just, you think outside the box. If your brain isn't just like, well, after I make more money, I'll just buy a bigger house in the next neighborhood over. Like that's a big difference from like, I guess I'll move to Panama because it seems interesting, right? Like all the other people who had that same thought process they felt the same way. And so then like instantly you just have this peer group of people that are so much closer to you.
1: As this has gotten popularized though, isn't that filter becoming less compelling or what's happening to that filter?
0: Yes and no. You know, you'll see this in in the super level one hotspots like Chiang Mai, for example, right? Like
1: what are the level one hotspots?
0: I think Chiang Mai is number one for sure. Bali, I think, is in there. Medellin is uh, one of the spots. I think uh, Playa del Carmen these days is bubbled up. Saigon as well. Basically, places that afford a great life and are inexpensive.
1: I think there's some European...
0: Uh, yeah, um, the Canary Islands. I can't think of the town right now. And then also Lisbon.
1: Yeah, Lisbon. You've got some Eastern European cities. Georgia. So why haven't we mentioned an American or Canadian city?
0: Number one is that they're expensive, right? The value that you get for your money, it's just not there, right? Like you can't live a good life for $1,000 a month anywhere in North America.
1: I think this is like something that I just really wanted to underline on the podcast because like I've been living here now for a year and a half and I make a good income, but like it is expensive and time intensive. I think it's it's really me like reflecting on the value that the nomadic lifestyle gave me. And like a lot of the things that I took for granted in the nomadic lifestyle, like networking with highly filtered people, those filters here in America take time to implement and to execute.
0: And people are less open to, to meeting people in the States because they kind of have their normal life where like... The expat nomads.
1: So these aren't like profound, like truth of the universe kinds of things, but it's the difference between making $3,000 a month and $10,000 a month. There's probably like an interesting geopolitical conversation to be had about like relative wealth and how like national economies and currencies work together. But for whatever reason, there are certain things in like North America that are expensive and there's certain things that are really, really cheap. You know, like if you want to. IKEA out your house, like that's going to be maybe potentially cheaper in North America than it would be in Europe or Asia, certainly. But if you want to have a great apartment, spend a bunch of time with friends, and not do any lifestyle overhead tasks, that kind of thing is like really expensive.
0: I think this is the thing that gets missed when people say, like, oh, it's like cheap to live there. And so that's why, you know, you only move to Chiang Mai so you can live for a thousand dollars a month. But this thing scales a bit. Like, one thing that you'll find in America, anywhere that's expensive, like in Europe as well, is like all the personal life admin that you have to do just to live. And you don't have to do that anywhere else. So, like, you know, how much time do you spend a week washing the dishes, cleaning your house, doing your laundry, running errands, like all this stuff that adds up and it's there forever? There's a funny, I'd love to find the clip. It was a long time ago. I remember when I was living in Panama. And at the time, since I was there full time, I had a full time maid that would come in every day and clean and cook and and this kind of stuff, which is very common, basically everywhere else in the world. And I remember watching a clip from Timothy Ferris. And I don't know what year this was. was a long time ago you know, cause he was like the God of our movement. Right. And, and everyone was like following what he did, but then he like moved back to San Francisco and went back to like living like VC life. It was very confusing, <laughs> <laughs> but what I thought was funny is he was, there wasn't time when he was starting to work on, I think he was starting to work on four hour body and he was, had a video about how his morning routine is and how he's like, you know, hacking things. And he made some scrambled eggs with, he put some eggs and some salsa in a tupperware and cooked it in the microwave and then ate it and then he talked about like how this is like so optimized so that like you know he can just rinse that out and it's only two ingredients but it's tasty and it's healthy you know and i thought this was like the dream this was the lifestyle design that you put on your your dream line was that like you can finally make it and have the best selling book about how to live our lifestyle so that you can make eggs in a Tupperware in San Francisco. Meanwhile, like my maid is like bringing me huevos rancheros and a fresh latte that she like made for me that at a set time when I like arrived in my office, you know, and I was like, what is going on here? I'm so confused about like the life that you designed for us, you know? What about
1: the people who say, especially like during COVID, there was a lot of kind of like a return to basic values movement in the community, I think. Because, you know, globalization and the the access that the middle class has to it is such a new thing. We're kind of on this high with it. You know, I'm going to go here. I'm going to go there. And a lot of people sort of return home and they say, I live. It's not for me. You know, I couldn't sustain relationships. Let's focus on the relationship part. What about people say, how can you really have friends if you're moving around all the time?
0: Yeah, it's a valid. It's a valid thing. I think that one thing you'll find is, first of all, when you hang out with nomads, you'll tend to find that they're moving around. And once you do it for a while, you start to meet enough people that there's usually somebody in the city that you're in because we kind of tend to circulate through a number of hotspots and, and places that you tend to like. So a lot of times you'll show up, you know, you show up in Mexico City and then you you, you kind of check around in the the nomad or the expat Facebook group and kind of see who's in town or this kind of stuff, you know. But when you're starting, you know, you can use a hobby or some other thing to meet local people and that's generally the the best way because then you can start to make local friends in those cities and then when you come back to those cities next time you already have some friends there and then there's some kind of excitement about like oh like i haven't seen you for 8 months like you know what have you been up to and you actually have stuff to talk about instead of the same guy you had beers with every week for 20 years you know so yeah you got to brew friends it it takes work you know you want to go to like different meetups of your interests or of other things and you can meet local people and and brew those relationships. But then yeah, you can kind of keep those going. And then when you come back to those places, then you start to have friends in those cities.
1: I think it's interesting because like I'm on the Jersey Turnpike a couple weeks ago. I'm hearing guys that are 70 years old talk about like their plan to like basically do weather arbitrage, financial arbitrage, you know, down in Florida. They have friends that they look forward to. My folks used to go to the Jersey shore during the summer, you know, they knew people down there and in some ways what's happened with globalization and the access that the middle class is like, you know, folks like I'll call us middle class. Like we have sort of access now to this amazing sort of global palette for the same thought exercise. And so part of me was like, am I taking crazy pills here? Because like I'm, I'm spending the winter in Thailand or no, like Thailand for me is like Florida was for the previous generation. all the same arguments can essentially be made and it's more financially viable for me to do it now because the quality of my income is location independent.
0: Yeah. Not to mention life is way better in Thailand than it is in Florida. It's not just about the money, right? Like it's just, it's a good life in in a lot of these places. And we're so trapped in this bubble of like, well, should I move to Austin or should I move to Miami? You know, it's like, well, there are other options, you know,
1: Let's talk about like the tech maximalists. I have a buddy Noah Kagan who would like listen to this, and he thinks it's interesting, like nomading and all this stuff. But what he would say is like, why don't you just make enough money to like live in the city you want to live in? Just move to San Francisco, and like, so what? If you have to make hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, just do that. You're smart. You're in tech. Go do that.
0: I don't really find the U.S. cities like attractive. There's something interesting about being in a culture that's not your own. You can learn a language. You can walk down the street and see a food vendor that's selling something that you've never seen before. And for me, that just, it doesn't get old. Living in San Francisco and like listening to VC guys talk about their great idea and then watching someone shit on the sidewalk, it's not, that's <laughs> not like my dream life, you know? I don't find it great. The weather's not great. Like, I don't think these utopias in the States are as utopian as, as people think they are after being in other places, you know? It also depends on like what you find interesting, right? Like talking about like Noah's argument, it's like, well, you know, he likes living in Austin and he likes the scene there. Also, like maybe his status there, right? Like I think that that could have something to do with it. I kind of like the anonymity of living in different places. And I find the, the seeing the different cultures around all the time, I find that interesting. And if you don't think that that's interesting, Then yeah, then you just moved to Austin.
1: I just love thinking about this because like, there is a big part of me that's like often asking myself like, am I taking crazy pills? I think back to like the first time I stepped foot in Mexico City. It was the first foreign place I'd ever been, and it like blew my mind, and it was so much fun. And like I kind of feel like you, it doesn't really get old. And you know, it's tempting to be to psychoanalyze yourself and say, is that like uh, something wrong with me? That like I want to do something different than the mainstream or whatever. Do you ever think about that? Is there something, is there some, so there's a broken quality to somebody who wants to live abroad and not in their home culture?
0: I've mentioned this to you before, but you know, I feel like the longer that you have the exact same routine in the exact place and do the exact same thing, like your life just kind of evaporates. If you're in the same house and the same routine and the same desk and the same friends and the same everything for five years, it's the same as if you did it for one year or 10 years. And then you're just like, well, what happened in my life? I feel like the amount of time that I like lived in Madison, for example, like I couldn't really tell you like off the top of my head like how long that was, because it all felt like one moment sort of. So I feel like you kind of hack life a little bit by getting to know different locations because your brain sort of resets and everything's sort of new and interesting. You're like, oh wow, these guys have like chicken skewers on the street. That's interesting. And these people talk this language or they wear this kind of clothes or whatever. That's your brain kind of notices all that stuff
1: it's like the two sides of the sword you know like i compare like the last year where i had like routine the same place it felt less dense like i did less things whereas i think about it would take me days to catalog like what one year with a more nomadic theme cuz you're just have so many more interactions i even feel myself slipping back into that thing where because I'm in like such a schedule and I have like such a routine here, like meeting new people is much more of a liability for me.
0: Which is why it's hard to meet people, right? Look, you don't want to meet people and you're the one who wants to meet people where if you land in Mexico city tomorrow and you're like, Oh, like you meet chatting with some dude at the coffee shop. Like, Hey, what are you up to? Like, Hey, maybe we should get lunch tomorrow. You know, like in Austin, you're like, dude, I don't want to have lunch with anyone. I need to focus on my routine.
1: It's pretty interesting to have, uh, you know, that tool at our disposal. And I think it's why I wanted to speak with you here today, Jesse, just to, to get a sense for, you know, as travel, you know, becomes an option for a lot more people. You know, it's not an either or thing. You don't have to be a nomad or a normie. So many people have gotten themselves to a place where you can basically have whatever you want to design for yourself. I think it's really exciting. Do you have anything, uh, kind of parting shots you want to offer to, uh, folks listening to the show?
0: To kind of recap what you were just saying there or go a little deeper, you can build your own path, right? It's okay to, if, if you want that routine in that house and in the, your home country, and that's fine too. And kind of on Noah's point, you just earn more money and then you can have that and you can go to Mexico City for two months a year and Chiang Mai for two months a year if you want. There are a lot of ways that you can build this puzzle and you know it doesn't have to be my way and my way may change and your way may change and, and that's okay. Money solves most of these problems. And, you know, there's a lot of interesting ways to live life, and it's gotten a lot easier than it used to be with all of the resources that are available. So you just got to kind of open your mind up a little bit.
1: Yeah. And it's actually, I don't think, an unsubtle thing to say that money solves all these problems. And that's why the financial puzzle is so intriguing to me. I remember like part of what was so cool about nomading for me is that I got to meet a lot of wealthy people. Basically, I was blocked out of all those conversations in America, but somehow I just found myself at the table all the time abroad. One of the things I realized about wealthy people that were even entrenched in their home country is that they basically lived like nomads. The nomadic caricature is of the baselining, selling a course online person. But when you meet like hyper wealthy people that have a thousand employees and they run a global company, they're going to the F1 race here and then they're spending two months with their, in their house here. And then they're going to that thing over there. They fundamentally adopt that. What is a digital nomad lifestyle?
0: Yeah. And they live all over the place. They have that. And I think that's the thing that gets missed that I guess is part of the point we're trying to make is that the lifestyle does scale and it gets better and more interesting. So it's like, yeah, you can live in Chiang Mai and get started for a thousand dollars a month. And that's great. And you should do that and get your business started. But once you start making five, ten, twenty, fifty thousand dollars a month, this lifestyle scales great. You know, there's amazing places that you can live all over the world, and then you can live in any of those cities, and you can live anywhere you want, anytime, do amazing things, and you know, the money solves all of that stuff.
1: Jesse Schoberg, thanks uh, so much for coming by the show. We appreciate your time.
0: Thanks for having me, man.
1: Big shout out to my guy, Jesse Showberg of dropinblog.com. Check him out on Twitter at Jesse Showberg. That's S-C-H-O-B-E-R-G. Honestly, when we got off the phone call, Jesse and I were texting back and forth. Producer Jane, we were saying we could have really dug deep on things like lifestyle ladder, on percentages of costs in different regions and how it plays out hypothetically in different businesses and Honestly, I feel like we could do a multi-multi-part series on that. If that's something you want, uh, email us. Let us know about that. What specifically do you want to hear more about? These topics are on the tip of the tongue for so many of us in the location-independent community who have been locked down for so long, even though you know our organizations are, by and large, remote first and completely international. It's been a really, really interesting time. Looking forward to just a little bit of normalcy. It's been interesting to sort of shelve a lot of these questions for the past year and a half or so, and now to, to just to begin to revisit the opportunities and sort of the new context. You know, whether or not things return to the normal we once had, uh, this question of internationalization of lifestyle and doing so with your business as well are absolutely going to be critical, strategic advantages in the future. It was also just a lot of fun. So I hope you enjoyed this one. Let us know what you'd like to hear us talk about on this topic in the future. We'd love, love, love to do another one. This is like total nerd out for us. I hope you enjoyed it too. All right. That's it for this week. We'll be back next Thursday morning.